Anyway, okay, Lord, oh, Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us so well, so much. And I'm asking that today that you would open our hearts. Crack us open, really. Break our heart open and pour your love into it. I'm asking that you would overwhelm us. You grant revelation that we'd know the love of the bridegroom. We'd see you as the bridegroom God. And that these truths, they would so transform the way we think about you. The way we think about your love and our identity with you. So come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Speak to us. Change us. We love you. We thank you for your word and for revealing the glory of Jesus through your word. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today we're talking about the bridal paradigm. And uh, the bridal paradigm uh, in that paragraph at the top, I explain that it is a lens or a mentality by which we view the scripture. It's, it's, we derive it from the Bible. The Bible explains this paradigm to us constantly in many, many ways. Figuratively and just um, in a straightforward way. It, it actually says direct things. Uh, but then there's many, many images, many, many uh, pictures of this as well. But it's a mentality by which we see the kingdom of God. And it enables us to relate to God uh, as a bridegroom. We see him as the bridegroom. And we see ourselves as his bride. Now, obviously, that is a fully biblical, theologically sound concept. It's, it's replete through the scriptures. It's constant. But uh, the term bridal paradigm, that's not, a, that's not a Bible term. It's a term to describe that whole mentality, that whole lens. And so uh, from beginning to end, from Genesis through Revelation, uh, this theme is constantly reiterated by God. He calls himself our bridegroom. He calls us his bride constantly. And so uh, there are so many implications of that. There, the ripple effects of, of the idea that God is a bridegroom God. I mean, Isaiah 54, 5, he says, your maker is your husband. The ripple effects of that truth are so shocking. And it, I'm telling you, this message completely reformatted my mentality of what God was like. When, when, I got, when I began to get this message, it shifted so many of my ideas about God. Now, I know last week we talked about the father heart and we talked about overcoming an orphan mentality and understanding God's love as a father. And that image is still 100% true. It's still legitimate. It, a lot of people, they think of the bridal paradigm and the father heart of God as two sides of the same coin with, with different uh, you know, impact, different um, ripples that come off of them. If the coin is God's love, bridal paradigm on one side, father heart on the other. But the implications, they're different when you look at it because 
a father's love, it is a certain measure of love. It's a certain manner of love. There's certain things that are, that are appropriate in a father's love. A, a bridegroom's love, it is a different manner of love than the father's love. You see it. It's, and it's not that God loves us differently from father to son. It's his full expression of his love. But he uses multiple uh, figures, multiple metaphors to explain it in fullness. Does that make sense? And so when we look at the bridal paradigm, now we're finding more implications of God's love. And man, it is so powerful. And for me, which is wild, I got bridal paradigm before I got father heart. And it, it rocked my world. So my testimony is just simply this. I was a fiery revival preacher, repentance, holiness, living sold out for Jesus, evangelism. That's like all my main messages. Uh, I honestly thought if somebody preached the love of God or the grace of God often, they were probably weak. That's what I thought. That was, that was the mentality I was coming from. So, so limited in my um, understanding of the Bible, my understanding of God, but really wanting to go hard for God and call others to do the same, you know. But thinking if you, if you spend too much time on the love of God, you're probably going to be a little bit passive. You're probably not going to be, you know, full out for Jesus. And so I was completely um, shallow in my understanding of love. And in fact, there would be moments when I would teach the love of God because I knew you had to teach it. But I would think I shouldn't teach this too much because it would be it would be just, you know, it would just set everybody into a, um, a, a passivity. I couldn't have been more wrong. I couldn't have been more wrong. So what happens is I go to a conference and uh, and in the conference, it's it's um, IHOP, Kansas City. It's um, let me think it's two thousand and um, th- two to three. So it's the second one thing conference. And all they're talking about is the love of God. All they're talking about is intimacy with God. And literally by the third day of the conference, I'm. In my heart, I'm begging them to preach Song of Solomon. I'm just wanting them to talk, talk about it. They, had, they hadn't even talked Song, Song of Solomon yet. And I'm, just, it, I'm so craving this message of intimacy. I'm like, could somebody explain Song of Solomon to me? And then I remember the last day they began to break it down. And it, it set me, I literally, for the next three months, was walking around in a, a partial inebriation. I mean, I was so high on the love of God. I was literally walking up to guys in the church, people that I knew that I knew were angry or had a, had a problem with me, walking up to them, grabbing them, hugging them, kissing them on the cheek and looking them in the eye and telling them, I love you so much. I am so sorry we've ever had a problem. I love you. That's all I want you to know. And people just like, what are you talking about? I was completely overwhelmed with this idea that God is a bridegroom passionately, fiery in love with his church, with his bride. And that's me. That's me. Now, so here's, here's a hurdle for, for a lot of guys. You know, they're like, uh, I'm good with the father heart, but that whole bridegroom thing is a little like syrupy, flowers. It's like, is, is this about like, pink hearts and 
chocolates and Jesus. Like I can't, I just can't go there. And, and, and I always tell the guys, you're his bride. So you're, you're his woman. Just get over it. And, and the women, you're the sons of God. So just get over that. So the, the whole thing is an expression of intimacy. It's not, you have to sort of pucker up and, you know, give me a kiss, Jesus. It's not, it's, that's not the point. The point is engaging God's love for you in a manner that you, you, you fully, you can contact it. And so he gives us those metaphors on purpose. Is it, is it warm in here to you guys? Okay, let's just go ahead. We'll pause this. We're going to go. What number? 74? 72? 72? 72 takes it. All right. So, I, man, I'm so excited. All right, here we go. So this is a vantage point. It's a viewpoint. It's a paradigm, a lens, a mentality uh, about how God relates to us as his husband. All right. So three symbols. Roman number one, three symbols. You have these three key symbols. We see the church as a body, which the the mystical understanding of us as the body of Christ is, it it cannot be understated. That we are part of one another and part with Jesus. We have, in Christ, you are joined to the Lord and joined to one another. Like, we, we need way more teaching on that understanding. Because especially in the United States where everybody thinks very entrepreneurially, very individually, you know, and, and it's, if it's going to be, it's up to me. They, they think that somehow temple means just me and I'm going to serve God, bless God, and I don't need anyone else. And that is completely the furthest thing from the truth. We all need one another. And furthermore, we all actually impact one another's ability to move forward in God. We move together, together with all the saints. Those phrases are in the New Testament that together with all the saints, that we would know the height, the width, the depth, the length, together with all the saints. And so there's this component of a body that we, we really, really don't get yet. We just don't get it. And so I think, anyway, I won't, I won't go much more into that, but you're the body of Christ, members individually. So that's a major, major uh, motif that we see in the New Testament, we need much more teaching on it. Family. Ephesians 3.15, who the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And that's what we were talking about last week. Uh, father heart and us as brothers and sisters. That's a critical, critical uh, understanding. And then thirdly, bride. Okay. Now, there, there's, these aren't the only ones. There's other ones. But these are the three that are the most... Emphasized. Now let's look at this Ephesians 5. Let's just read through this carefully. And uh, let's allow this to open our heart a little bit. So Paul, to the Ephesian church, giving insight into how husbands and wives are supposed to relate in marriage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, 
not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Here's the phrase. Just as the Lord does the church. So everything that Paul is telling husbands to do, he's telling us this is how Jesus relates to us. He loved the church, gave himself for the church, to sanctify the church, to cleanse the church, to present the church to himself glorious, without any spot, that we would be holy, without blemish. That whole thing is Jesus' activity and how he relates to us. But this phrase, nourishes and cherishes it just as his own flesh. Jesus, he's looking at you right now and he's thinking, I want to help you grow. I want to nourish you. And the reason why is because I cherish you. I cherish you. I adore you. You are so important to me. I am so interested in you. It breaks my heart when believers think that Jesus is somehow overlooking them. Somehow leaving them. Somehow not listening or not answering. They imagine him to be rejecting them. And I'm like, no. That couldn't be further from the truth. He is cherishing you. He adores you. And his whole desire is to see you grow in love. That's, what, that's his mentality towards you. He, he, he wants to see you grow in maturity. He wants to see you grow in love. And, and what he's after is to present you to himself glorious without spot or wrinkle. What he's after is he wants to help you become a bride that's comparable to himself. All right? That we would be an equally yoked partner with the Lord. Now I know, look, I know. I look in the mirror and I've got the same problems you got. I go, oh, you want to marry this? Like, whoa, that's rough. Because I know my insides, I know my outsides, I know my weaknesses. You know what I'm saying? Like they're in front of me. And I'm like, oh God, you really want to marry me. Like this is a bad deal for you. You're getting the short end of the stick. I mean, I'm getting the best deal. You're getting the worst deal. And he's like, he literally says to me, no, I don't see it that way. I don't see it that way. You are the object of my desire. You're what I want. You're what I want. We can let this thing land on us that he's not trying to get something out of us. He's trying to get us. He's not trying to get you to do something. Not trying to get you to prove something. He's wanting you. And what he wants is he wants to help you to grow into maturity and love that you could be an equally yoked bride. Another way to say it is that you would love him the way he loves you. Equally yoked isn't about being, you know, like having all the exploits that Jesus has. Equally yoked is about loving him the way he loves you. 
And He right now, He is committed to causing you to grow, to nourishing you, to causing you to to mature, that your love for Him would explode. It would be the compelling agent of your life. That's what He's after. He wants love to be the single compelling agent of your life. It's powerful. I have a friend, she says it this way. She says, God, his whole desire is to burn everything off until he reduces us to love. It's powerful. Reduces us to love. Now, what would your life look like? Think this, just think about it every day. What if, once the eyes open, your whole motivation and your whole ambition. So what's moving you and what you're after was simply love. I'm moved by love today and today I want to access love. What if that was it? How many of the lesser issues of your life would just evaporate? They would just drain off. I want to live today because he loves me. I want to breathe today because he loves me. Love is what's motivating me. And love is what I'm shooting for. How would that change the way you think about other people? How would that change the way you think about people who have a problem with you? How would that change the way you have you flow in conflicts? If you're being motivated by love and you're trying to access love. How would it how would it morph the way you live? Well, I guarantee you this. It would deliver you from fear. Yeah. When I, I I always take a pause when people come to me and they're worried, they're stirred up there. Oh man, oh, you gotta be worried about this. I always pause. That never compels me because perfect love casts out fear. And I know if somebody's trying to bring worry as the motivator to me, that that's, not, that's probably not gonna be how the Lord's gonna lead me. He's gonna lead me through love. You know, so the freaked out person, ah, they come in, this is serious. I go, okay. Cool. I, I'm, I appreciate that you feel like it's serious. Let me, let me ask the Lord about that. We'll see, we'll see how serious it is. And, and it, sometimes it makes me go slower on things that are serious, but I would way rather go slower on stuff that's serious than freak out with everybody about stuff that's not. Which the majority of people are freaking out about stuff that's not serious. And the reason why is because they're not motivated by love. They're not listening to love. They're not motivated by love. They're not after love. All right. He nourishes and cherishes you. I, I just underlined that on the notes. Just, what's God? If you ever want to know what's God doing in your life, he's either nourishing or cherishing. He's causing you to grow in love or he's simply adoring you. And by adoring you, he's nourishing you. Do you see that? 
I won't, I won't steal Becca's thunder because she's going to teach Song of Solomon. So I stayed completely off Song of Solomon in this. But every time, listen, every time in the Song of Solomon that the bridegroom addresses the, the, the Shulamite, the, the maiden, every time he says either you look good or I like you or he says you look good and I like you. Every time. That's so awesome. Because you know what I know? When, even, even when she's in the middle of her darkness, even when her stuff is getting called out, he says, my beloved. And then he speaks to her. You are beautiful. You, he'll say, you are all fair. You look good. You are all fair, my beloved. And then, and then often he says, you're faithful. You have dove's eyes. When she's not faithful and in her ugly state of being burned out and her lack of faithfulness, he speaks to the budding issues of love in her heart. And he says this. He goes, I know there's weakness there, but let me nourish you. You look good to me. I like you so much. You're faithful to me. And, and she goes, you, how could it be that I'm faithful to you? I, I, I've got these dark areas. She, she calls them uh, shadows. Let the shadows flee away. She calls them shadows. I've got these gray areas, these dark areas. She goes, I'm dark. And, and he goes, no, no, no. You've dove's eyes. And she goes, how could you say that about me? He goes, because even though your love is small, it's real. Oh, guys, this is the big one. This is, a, this is the one that changed my life. If I, if I went out here in this woods and I found us a small pine tree, like yeha, like, I mean, just skinny little twig of a trunk and two sprigs coming off of it, okay? And I said, that is not a pine because it's not a pine until it's, Big and tall like these others. And I go, that's not a pine. You, you, you would all look at me and go, um, I think it kind of is a pine. It's just a small pine. And I go, no, no, no. It's got to be mature to be a pine. It's got to be a hundred feet tall to be a real pine. You all go, pretty sure that came from a pine cone. That's a pine it's got two little sprigs. Those are pine needles. That's a pine. If I sat there and continued to hammer that it's not a pine, everyone in this place would be like, no, that's clearly a pine. Here's the point. Even though it's tiny, it's still a pine. And even though your love is immature, God says it's real. It's faithful. So many of us live in a room called shame that we put ourselves in when the Bible actually tells us he has put you in a room called accepted. And we live in a room called shame because we're not yet what we think we're supposed to be. Did you hear me? We're not yet what we think we're supposed to be. I'm supposed to be holy. I'm supposed to be a lover. I'm supposed to be selfless. I'm supposed to be patient. I'm supposed to be humble. And so because we're not those things, we get ashamed of our own you know, weaknesses, of our own immaturity. 
And when we do that, when we get shamed of our own immaturity, we put ourselves in this room called shame. Rejected from the beloved. That's what shame is. I'm rejecting myself from you. And Ephesians 1 clearly says, you are accepted in the beloved. Having nothing to do with your performance. And this is the mentality of the bridegroom God. He says, though your love is small and though it's weak, it is real to me. Your love is real. Even a glance of your eye, he says, it moves me. And so his mentality towards you is to nourish that. He's always trying to nourish that. Well, well sometimes that means he pours more on. He's, oh, you got a little bit on there. I'm, gonna, oh, I'm about to heap you with love. And, and, and we fall into the mistake of thinking, oh, man, I'm feeling God's love so much. I must have done something right. He goes, actually, you're just a little bitty lover. I want to make you a big lover. I'm going to pour more love on you. And here's what happens. We love him because he first loved us. So he's calling love out of us by pouring love on us. Sometimes in that nourishing, because he loves us, he says that activity is actually a hindrance to love. And so I am addressing this activity. He corrects us. Why? Because he's trying to get love to grow. Listen, listen to me very, very carefully. God wants one thing from you. You. What do I mean by that? He wants your love. That's it. Everything else is just, it's just minor details, I promise. He's nourishing you. He's cherishing you. You know, Hebrews says Jesus is not ashamed to be called our brother. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. It's beautiful. He cherishes you. I mean, he he is so overwhelmed. We, we use all sorts of terms to try to get our words around it. Fiery, passionate. He's burning in love. He's a bridegroom. We, we use all these terminologies to try to, you know, animate this, this concept of who he is as a bridegroom. So uh, verse 32 there in Ephesians 5. Verse 31. This is a shock of all creation. This is a crazy, crazy shock ever. Look, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. For what reason? For what reason? Because Christ loved the church. Because Christ loves people. God creates the institution of marriage. Just follow this. God didn't like put Adam and Eve together and go, wow, they like each other. That's so cool. I'm going to say that I'm like Adam. I'm going to be a bridegroom. that's, That's what I'll do. Clearly not. No, for this reason... Because God loves people, 
The whole thing, the whole institution of marriage is set up to testify of God's love for us. He creates marriage to testify of himself. So beautiful. That's why God hates divorce. Because it is an assault on the knowledge of him. He creates marriage to, you know, proclaim the knowledge of him. This idea, this man and woman, that they, they, they're fully given to one another. They're completely vulnerable, completely open, honest, caring, preferring. Like this whole idea, romantic, like just so in love. That has always been about telling us about what Jesus is like about you. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one. So that, that oneness in marriage speaks of the oneness, 1 Corinthians 6 talks about, that we have in Christ. Somebody find that verse. I think it's 1 Corinthians 6, like 18. Somebody look it up for me. But that oneness that he gives to humans, it's a testimony of the oneness we have with him. Is that the right one, Steph? Uh, it's 1 Corinthians 6. Maybe it's 2. Uh, joined to the Lord. Yeah. To, to the Lord. Is one body with her. And he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Yeah, but he who is joined, it's verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. First Corinthians 6, 17. Mm-hmm. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Is it still hot in here? Yes. All right, I'm going to knock it down. Okay. <clears throat> this is a great mystery I speak concerning Christ in the church. That Ephesians 5, here's the, here's the miracle of Ephesians 5. That teaching that Paul does in Ephesians 5, he makes it absolutely, completely clear that... Marriage is a testimony of Jesus and his love for us. And so if you're a single girl in here, let me just give you just a word. You're a single girl in here. If the dude doesn't know the bridal paradigm, I'm not saying he's got to be able to give a theological treatise on it. But if he doesn't know it, send him to go do some homework before you ever get connected with that guy. Because his job as a husband is to love you as Christ loves the church. And if he doesn't know how Jesus loves him as the bride, he will not know how to love you as his bride. So this is always my word to single girls. Send that dude packing. Give him, a, give him my eight podcasts on Song of Solomon. My other you know, 15 on Bridal Paradigm. Make that guy do like book reports on that stuff. <laughs> and, then, and then let's, you know, then, then say, okay, then maybe we'll go on a date. Maybe. What do you think about Jesus' love for you? If he can't access that, I'm telling you. It, you'll save yourself a world of hurt if this guy will get this down. And, and Now, I'm not saying you can't be married to a dude that didn't know the bridal paradigm. I was married for 10 years before I didn't know the bridal paradigm. My wife is a saint. Because at that point... I knew God loved me, but I didn't know it. You know what I'm saying? I knew, I knew God had love and that he was loving. He had love for me, but I, did, it wasn't, 
I, didn't, I wasn't accessing the love of God as the compelling agent of my life. And so I, about the time, and, I, and listen, we went to marriage retreats every single year and received at least four weeks of teaching, pulpit teaching on marriage, some years as many as eight weeks of teaching just on marriage. Every single year, and we did a one-weekend uh, retreat for marriage every year for 10 years. And nothing, nothing touched and changed our marriage like me getting the bridal paradigm. That's why I say that so strong. Once I begin to get the bridal paradigm, something unlocked in my understanding of who she was to me, who I was to him, it all shifted. And, and really, there, there's several big hurdles, but the biggest one was I, I got the revelation that he enjoys me in my weaknesses. And so as a husband, I look at my wife and, and whereas for 10 years, I'm like, you need to get better at that. Once this hits me, I'm like, you are so cute in that. That little thing that you do, that's so cute. She's like, you used to be frustrated by this. I go, I know, but you know, I like you either way. Like, I like you either way. So I just like you. And, and it wasn't about, I need to fix that issue. It was just like, I want to pour, I want to pour love on you and accept you regardless of whatever I think is, you know, needs to be strengthened. Half the stuff didn't need to be strengthened. The other half began to melt away as I just continued to love. Come on. Now I'm telling you that I didn't get that from a marriage conference. I got that from the revelation of his love for me. Am I perfect in that? No, I'm not perfect in that. But I'm so much better than I used to be. 27 years in, you get in a good rhythm. I'll just brag. I'll kind of just brag, a little spiritual brag. Going to bed last night, put her head on the pillow. We, always, we say the same thing every night. I love you. Good night. Every night, we say the same thing for 27 years. I love you, babe. I love you too. Good night, babe. Good night. Every, every single night. And that's just our little way to say, stop talking. But, <laughs> but it, it affirms. It affirms us with one another every single night. But last night, my, my wife, her, her parting words were, we haven't gotten in a fight in so long. I can't remember the last one we got into. That was, that was like money. That was like gold. I'm not as much of a jerk as I used to be. Praise <laughs> God. So special. So special. But that didn't, that didn't come because I'm awesome. That didn't come from a marriage conference. That didn't come from three steps. That came from me sitting under this faucet of knowing that he loves me in my weakness. That he is radical in love for me. His eyes are burning with fire for me. Even in my immaturity, he says, my love is real. Even though my love is weak, even though I'm dark, even though I make mistakes, he is radical in love for me. That revelation, when that, when that connected inside, it shifted my whole marriage. All right. Two, energized by passion. I could say so much on that. Wherever you go after this place, Wherever you go, if it's here or somewhere else, get with a leader that loves his wife, if it's a man, that loves his wife as Christ loves the church. Like, just find that person. 
Just yoke yourself to that person because then he'll love the church as Christ loves the church. All right. Energized by passion. Um, so this is about motivation. And I just use that word energized. You, you could use whatever might. You want to be biblical, use might in the inner man. Power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever term you want to use. I just use energy just because people get it. Like I've, I'm full of energy. I'm full of life. And we are to live full of life, full of energy, not on the basis of our circumstances, the stock market, the state of the union, which we just had, whatever, the bad state of the union, whatever. We're not to live energized or depleted on the basis of anything else. We're supposed to live energized by passion, by the love of God. The love of God is the singular compelling and controlling agent of the human heart. The love of Christ compels us, controls us, and it is a constraining agent. That 2 Corinthians 5 is what I'm quoting. It's right there about verse 14. <clears throat> the love of Christ controls us, compels us, or constrains us. Those are three different translations for that same word. It compels us. It motivates us. It energizes. God's love energizes us. It constrains us. It, it actually keeps us out of doing things that are going to inhibit love. Love motivates. Love gives me boundaries. And it controls. It guides me. It, it shows me where to move inside the boundary. Is that, you see what I'm saying? So I've got energy to, for the engine to start. I've got boundaries in which to live. And I've got direction where to go all by the love of God. Compelling, controlling, constraining love of God. So that's how we're supposed to live. We're supposed to live energized by passion. You, you, you wake up in the morning and you think, what good is today? What, why do I want to get out of bed today? I want to get out of bed for love. He loves me. I had the craziest experience this morning. I stayed up later than I needed to last night. My alarm goes off. And I, and I always do the same thing. Alarm goes off. And for a year now, I make my bed instantly. I make most, many days I make my bed in the dark. I just learned that little discipline helped me just to be disciplined in tons of other areas. I make my bed. I go, <laughs> go in the bathroom, flip the light on. And I'm trying to open my eyes. I can't even open my eyes. It is so stinking bright in the bathroom. I don't know why it was so bright this morning, but it was epically extra bright. So I'm sitting there in front of the sink like, I got to get these eyes open. I got to get these eyes open. And I'm like, oh, oh. And, I, and I'm sitting there and it's three minutes. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like maybe since college have I ever had that experience where it's so bright for whatever reason I couldn't get my eyes open. And it's a day like that. I'm going, why am I out of bed? This is dumb. It's raining outside. I can't even open my eyes. This is a horror. What am I doing? And then the answer comes. You love me. You love me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing love today. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing love. I get these eyes. Let's get, this, let's get the toothpicks out. Prop these bad boys open. Let's get going. Because you love me. 
And that is the thing. And I'm telling you, there's been, let me just be real with you. There's been a hundred plus days. It's not even a hundred, it's more. Where I wake up and I'm in a full onslaught of spiritual warfare, depression, all sorts of emotional, spiritual pain. I mean, the struggles, the, the burdens of ministry, all crouching me. Wake up, eyes open. Oh, I hate that situation. Oh, I don't want to have to deal with that. Oh, this is hard. Why do I want to do this today? You love me. You love me. And through every storm, it's love. Every storm, it's love. The only reason I'm staying in this, love. You love me. Why don't I just cut and run? Why don't I just blow it off? Why don't I just blow that person up? You know what I mean? It's love. I'm telling you, if you're living by anything besides love, you are living shallow, you're living empty, you're living short of what God created you to live by. Love is the motivator. That's called being energized by passion. Now, most people, they don't live energized by passion. They don't live filled with might by His Spirit in their inner man because of love, Ephesians 3. They live urgent because of needs. Zealous because of issues. Compelled by challenges. That's how most people live. We call that living, well, well, let me say it this way. When you live that way, urgent to get things done because issues and needs and challenges and difficulties, and, and some people, they live for a fight. They just want to fight. Some people, you know, they're just wired. They're just different. But if you live like that, you are living by a motivator that will actually destroy you. Undoubtedly, you've seen a sci-fi movie. This motif shows up. They're trying to figure out how to make the engine go faster. They put in different fuel. And they have to do a bunch of different trials because they're burning the engine up over and over and over and over, right? And then they have to figure out how to make the engine better, bigger, better, so it can run on the fuel that makes it go faster. The, uh, I think that's, that's the motif of The Incredibles, the first one where the guy shows up with the bad the villain and he's he has to make a bigger batter you know it's bigger it's batter anyway that guy he's trying to figure out one that's going to actually work but every one of them is burning out because mr incredible stronger but here's the point uh the fuel that you are meant to run on at top capacity is love that's it your heart is meant to run on love fear is a horrible fuel Worry, anxiety, a horrible fuel. Pain. If it moves you into love, it can be okay. Fear is the worst one. Most people's underlying motivation is fear. They're afraid. Something's got them. Something is compelling them. Even passivity can be a, a result of a, a fear motivation. I don't want to because what if I did? You're made to run on love. So urgency oftentimes will cause people to, to, to go to action and they will be zealous. But here's the thing. Zeal by itself will consume you. Zeal will ultimately burn you out. It won't sustain you. What you here, here's a typical... 
experience of someone who is motivated by zeal. They have these massive big mountaintop experiences and then they have big valley experiences. Fired up, go for God. Ah! And crash. How do I know that? Because I lived like that for a good 10 years of my ministry. I would have big mountaintops with the Lord and giant valleys. And it was wild because I could tell you almost, looking back on it, I can see the valleys almost constantly happening right after. And I can tell you when the mountaintops, looking back, I can say that's when the mountaintop hit, that's when the valley hit. I would hit a top, boom, valley, top, valley. Why? Because for me, the reward was something I was attaining in ministry. The reward wasn't something I was carrying on the inside. And the reward that you and I get to carry is the affections of God. The, the fiery eyes of Jesus looking at us with a smile on his face. That's the reward. He's smiling at us. Loving us. <clears throat> if I'm moved only by urgency, I will burn out. If I'm compelled by passion, his passion for me, I will be sustained. Even through big mountains and, and valleys. It doesn't matter how many people are coming to the house of prayer. It doesn't matter how many are serving our services, how many are whatever, watching our live stream or following me on TikTok. <laughs> None of that matters. What matters is he loves me. He loves me. But we make it all about that kind of stuff. Y'all like that one? You like that? I can give you a little more of that. Uh, we make it all about that kind of stuff. And that stuff is not legit. It's not real. And I mean, while that our whole, like so many people today are compelled by the number of likes they got. That's really rough. So here's what happens with people when they don't have a revelation of the love of God. Which remember the first commandment is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we'll talk about that in a second. The second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. He says this, the, the second is like the first. It, it, it comes out of the first. But when we do ministry from the second commandment first, loving the neighbor as ourself, what we, what we do is we substitute serving others for knowing the love of God, receiving and giving the love of God. And there's a ton of ministries that they say that. They say, we love God by loving people. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't disagree that that's an, a, an appropriate sentiment. That I'm loving you because I love God. But if I'm not doing the first, I love you, God, and you love me. If I'm not doing that, I've got nothing to offer in the second. Yeah. I have no fuel for the second. So doing the second without a revelation of the first completely burns you out. It's running your engine with no oil. Anybody ever did that? Ever blown a car up? Yeah, running an engine with no oil is doing the second commandment without the revelation of the first. So here's what I, here's what I am completely convinced of. It's why Jesus taught it the way he did. But I'm completely convinced of it. You can't do love too much. You can't do loving God too much because you get in there. You know the love of God that God has for you. You love him back. You're flowing back and forth in love. He is going to tap you on the shoulder and go, I love you so much. And do you want to know what I love too? And I go, yeah, you love me. What else do you love? He goes, I love them. I go, you love them? 
He goes, oh yeah. Done deal. I will happily tell them how much you love them. This is not even a question. Because you love me so much. I used to tell people if they didn't go evangelize, their blood would be on your hands. I'd preach that. You guys were like, dear God, he was scary. The monster. You, you know, you only do what you know, and that's all I knew. But when I found the love of God, the concept of sharing the gospel with somebody always, it, it just shifted completely. This is about I love them because he loves them. And how do I know that he loves them? Because I know he loves me. And then I have something to offer them. And that's why so many times, <laughs> this is horrible to say, but it's true, the church is a horrible witness because we're communicating information without any revelation. We're communicating information about the gospel without any revelation of the heart of God. And it's because we didn't do the first commandment. We didn't love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So if you ever found yourself burned out and bruised in ministry, it's likely that you were doing things from a second commandment first place. And God calls us to put the first commandment in first place and then do the second from that place. Song of Solomon 1.6, perfect example. Look at what she says. She says, I tried to stay off of it, but I didn't. Do not look upon me because I am dark. In other words, I'm burned out. The sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. The leaders above me, they made me the keeper of the vineyard of the church, but I didn't have even take care of my own heart. You have no idea in 25 years of ministry how many times somebody has come to me and said, I am so burned out. I am so worn out. I, just, I, don't, I, don't, even, I don't even want to go to church anymore. And I tell them the same thing. I go, tell you what, just try this. Come, sit in the prayer room, lay on the back row. Don't talk to anybody. Do that for three months and then let's have a conversation. They go, what do you mean? I go, yeah, I mean, don't do anything. Just lay there. And if you think you want to read your Bible, that's fine. If you think you want to worship, that's fine. But your job is to do nothing, to lay there. And I've literally had people, this is real, I have testimonies, names, and faces. Real people who are taking the exit ramp on their calling in God. They were leaving because they were so burned out. I told them, come in and sit down. I don't want anything from you. Just sit there. Just sit there. Don't, you, don't have to, don't even, you don't have to pray. Just be. Sit in the room. Breathe there. That's all you got to do. And they get in the atmosphere of this incense and it begins to intoxicate them and then they start loving back. They start worshiping. The heart's full. Heart catches fire. They'll come to me in three months and say, you have no idea. I go, I might have an idea. Tell me. <laughs> God loves me so much. I go, I know. I love being in here. I love God. I know you do. I want to do whatever he wants, he does, whatever he wants me to do. I, I knew you did. I knew that. And then I tell him, I go, look, you don't have to do anything else. You can love him first. What? What about everything? All these needs and missions and gospel and human trafficking. I go, look, love him first. The rest is minor details. 
He will eventually tell you what mountain he wants you to go to. He'll invite you to that mountain with him, and you go together. But I have names and faces of people that were leaving their calling in God. They sat on the back row for three months or six months, and they just drank in God's love. And they're pastors, they're missions leaders, they're in the ministry today because they got resuscitated just by coming to know love. Not because I told them, not because I taught them anything. Like, it wasn't my great teaching God. No, they literally sat there and I didn't talk to them for three months. And they came by to me, you have no idea. I go, I think I do. This is everything. Do the first commandment in first place. Do it without apology. Here's the thing. When you do the first commandment in first place, when you really do it, you love God with your whole heart, you're really pouring your heart out to Him, people will criticize that. I know this firsthand, but we actually have a huge biblical example of this. Do you know who this is I'm talking about? Well, Mary Bethany. She pours out her love on Jesus. You get it. She's forfeiting her bridal price. She's saying, you're my bridegroom. The dowry she's giving would have been something she would have offered in a marriage. She pours out the oil. That's her dowry. She pours it on him. She forfeits her future. She says, you're my bridegroom. I will love you extravagantly all the days of my life. And she gets criticized by the disciples. And what's interesting, I was just rereading the story again this morning, just this idea that Jesus actually lets the criticisms come. You know what I mean? Like it would have been very easy for Jesus as she's pouring out. He kind of, you know, Jesus is pretty prophetic. <laughs> you know, he kind of, bad in here. Hey, 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 before you guys say something stupid right now that's going to be recorded in the Bible forever, just shut up. Like he could have totally done that. What she's doing is preparing my body for burial and what she's doing will be talked about in the gospel forever. How about that? Don't say your stupid line, guys. No. He actually goes, hmm, they're about to make a major mistake. Say it. He allows her to experience the pain of it he allows their words to get forever recorded in infamy. And he's making a point. If you want to love him this way, if you want to do the first commandment, you want to pour your heart out on him, even some of the most spiritual people are going to look at you and go, that's not, that's a waste. You're wasting yourself. He goes, no, this is the gospel. Literally, that's what he says. No, leave her alone. This is, what she's done will be memorialized in the gospel. This is the gospel. And beloved, that's the gospel story that we are romanced by God to the extent that we pour our whole lives out on him. We give him everything. We give him our love. We give him our future. We give him our decisions. We give him our shame. We give him our embarrassment. We give him everything that we have. You get it all, Jesus, because I love you. I know you love me. I love you. That's it. That's the gospel. When we live that place, from that place, the first commandment, our hearts are alive, we're energized with the passion of God. When we live in the second place, we are burned out. We're ready to take the exit ramp. We don't want church anymore. We don't even want Jesus anymore because we think Jesus is a slave driver instead of a bridegroom. So Ephesians 3, there's your passage. 
Intimacy produces energy or might from a heart filled with love. Look at how this is all tied together. It's just so shocking. I remember when I first got this coming out of my testimony, having been the guy that was hellfire and brimstone, repentance, holiness, revival guy. And then I saw this. I said, oh my gosh. I would pray for the power of God hours on end. Fire. God release power. Fire. Release glory. Release, you know, all your, pour out your spirit. Acts 2. Pentecost. Release your fire. I was that guy. And I read this passage and I remember just sitting there like, oh my gosh. He says this. I, I, I bow to you, Father, the whole family have wrote his name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in your inner man. Strengthened with might through his spirit in your inner man. That word might is dunamis. Filled with power. Fortified with power. By His Spirit in your inner man. How are we going to get it? By Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. How? That you would be rooted and grounded in love. That you'd be able to comprehend with all the saints. There's the height, the width, the depth, the length. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. That you'd be filled with all the fullness of God. The power that I'm sitting here crying out for. Blowing my vocal cords for like hours. I'm talking about hours of intercession. Release power, fire, glory, God. Hours in that. He says, I will fill you with power by coming to a revelation of my love. I was like, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) W-U-T. What? (laughs) I couldn't believe it. It's right there. Filled with all the fullness. Know the love of Christ, which makes no sense. It passes knowledge. I do this with the love of God. I, tip, I put my weeks up before him. I go, you like me. He goes, I like you. I go, come on. Like, look at, this is ridiculous. I am ridiculous. I'm just ridiculous. I'm not, I'm not that likable. I'm not even lovable. I'm nothing. How could you? Because I made you. You, you. you made me. You made me like this. He goes, yeah, I made you just like that. I go, what were you doing? He says, I didn't have another one like you. You didn't have another one like you. And I wanted one just like you. Like, you wanted this. He says, yeah. You're what I want. And man... That place, I go, okay. You can have everything. You can have everything. It doesn't make any sense. It passes all knowledge. It makes no sense. I don't even like me like you like me. He goes, that's the thing I want you to get to. Love yourself the way I love you. I go, man, who am I to say I can't love myself if you love me? What, am I bigger than you? Okay, you love me. Okay, I love me. He goes, therein, that's the spot that you get filled with all of me. You get filled with all of me in that place. That's what it means to live energized by passion, guys. Live alive. 
in the love of God, filled with energy, filled with passion. Let's, let's take a five minute break. I, I want, I, there's, there's a few more things I want to share with you. I'm so sorry I was late today. Let's take a five minute break right there. Lord, I pray, just cause your fiery seal to rest on our hearts. Cause your fiery seal to rest on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a five minute break. We'll start back at 1135.